Hear the word of the Lord from Romans chapter 7, verses 1 through 25. Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who are, know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she's released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but now when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me through it, kill, killing me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Do that which is good, then bring did that which is good, then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law, that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh, I serve the law of sin. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. It is good to be with you this morning. It's good to be worshiping in one gathering. I really miss having one gathering, by the way. Uh, this morning, we are going to do something a little different. Since we have just finished up Advent, and we are not starting a new sermon series until January 9th, and January 9th, we are going to be working through the book of Ezra. Uh, in the coming new year, we're going to be working through Ezra and Nehemiah. Um, we have a couple weeks here where we get to do some standalone sermons. 
The first Sunday in January, we usually do a year in review sermon where I kind of cast a vision for the new year. But today, I want to use this sermon to answer a question that troubles many Christians. And I think it should, it should actually trouble many more Christians than it actually does. The question is, what is the Christian's relation to the law of God? Okay, first, I want to define my terms this morning. What do I mean or what does the Bible mean when it says the law? Well, typically when the New Testament writers refer to law, they are referring specifically to the Old Testament law. That is the law of Moses or the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. It also, when we use the word law, it also refers to all of the commandments that we see in the New Testament as well. So most of the time, Christians come to me or the Christians say something like this. Do Christians still have to follow the Old Testament law? Do I, am I still under law? Do I still have to follow the Old Testament law? Or they say, isn't the Old Testament obsolete since we have the New Testament? I've heard preachers say things like, Christians need to unhitch themselves from the Old Testament. Christians no longer read the Old Testament. We just read the New Testament. I've heard all kind of confusing statements like this. So I want to answer those questions today or do my best to answer those questions today. And I'm going to tell you specifically, if you come from a more non-denominational church or more of a, maybe a Baptist uh, church, these issues might be even more thorny for you because oftentimes they're not really taught um, and a reformed understanding of the word of God. There's, they've done a lot of work in this area and there's a lot of history there. But in non-denominational circles, you kind of avoid it because it's a little complex. It's a little difficult. And they just kind of want to keep things on the bottom shelf most of the time. Well, we're not going to do that this morning. Um, we're going to get into this. This is a little bit of a thorny issue because we have a tendency to try to make things as simple as possible. We don't really want to do the hard work of studying the scriptures and taking them all into account and doing our best to try to hold them all together with one uh, one thing in the center. So what do we do? When we, when we don't really study the scripture very well and we don't want to understand the complexity of the issue, we take one simple statement that we can understand, a statement from the, from the Apostle Paul like this, you are not under law, but under grace. And we go, woo! Yes! I think I know what that means. And it means exactly what I hope it means. Which means the Old Testament law has nothing to do with me anymore. I can just forget all that stuff. But if that is the case, what do we do with the Ten Commandments? Do we all agree that thou shalt not murder is something that still applies to us and still applies to the rest of the world? It's a good rule. Let's keep that one. Throw them all out. Boat that one, let's keep. Right, no, then we get into like coveting our neighbor's wife. Nope, I want that one too. Right? Well, there's a lot of those in there we, we still think we should keep. So what I want to do today is I'm going to give us a traditional, reformed understanding of the law and teach us what the New Testament says about our relationship to the Old Testament law. Now, it's going to be a little teachy, okay? It's going to be a lot more teachy than normal. I'm not going to apologize for that. I think we need it this morning, okay? 
Now, why do we need it? I'm gonna tell you this. A lot of our, a lot of the division that's happening in the church today is actually over this issue. People don't understand it. They think it's over politics. They think it's over morality. They think it's over gender. They think it's over education. They think it's under all of it. It's actually not. It's over this. And I'm gonna say it like this. Does the Old Testament tell us how government should look? Does the Old Testament tell us what education should look like? Does the Old Testament tell us how to live? Or does it not? That's the question I'm gonna try to answer for us this morning. Let me pray and we can dig in God's holy word together. We're gonna be in Romans 7 quite a bit. We're gonna be jumping all over the place. So let me pray. Father, we need you to open our minds. We need you to speak your word, bring light into the dark areas of our understanding. All of us in this room have areas in our understanding that need light. We do not think Christianly in all aspects of life. We do not think according to your word. That we know our thoughts are not your thoughts. And so we need your thoughts to illuminate us. We need to think your thoughts after you. Would you help us do that this morning? Would you think through my mind and speak through my vocal cords? Would it be all of you and none of me this morning? Would you use me to speak your eternal words to your people? Would your sheep hear your voice and would they love it? And would they respond to it? Would they joyfully follow it? In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, first thing I want us to do is open up our Bibles to Romans chapter seven. I want you to, we're gonna start in verse 12 this morning. And this is what, this is the first question I want us to answer. What is Paul, what is Paul's perspective on the law, on the Old Testament law? Romans chapter seven, verse 12. Here it is. So the law is holy. Pause. What does holy mean? Holy means completely distinct from creation. It's transcendent. It comes from outside of creation, not from within creation. The law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. This is one of the most important principles that we need to understand if we're going to understand God's law and God's world. The law is holy because it comes to us from a holy God. The law is righteous because it comes to us from a righteous God. The law is good because it comes to us from a good God. God's law declares the character of God and so reveals his glory. Shows us what's good, shows us what's right, shows us what's holy. Now here's where we need to make some distinctions. Traditionally, reformed scholars have noted that though scripture refers to all of God's commandments of, as the law, as, as one, the law is one, it's helpful to think of the law through three different categories. Okay, first, you have the moral law of God that reflects his character. These laws, the moral laws of God are eternal, right? Thou shalt not kill. Why? Because our God is a God, because God is life himself, right? So thou shalt not murder also means thou shalt protect life. Why? Because God is life himself, because God is holy, okay? So that, that, Law reflects the character of God, right? Do we understand that? So we have the moral law of God. Secondly, 
you have ceremonial laws. Ceremonial laws refer to the right worship of God before the fulfillment of them was accomplished by Jesus. These are all of the washings in the Old Testament, all of the purification ceremonies, all of the sacrifices, all of the funky clothes that they had to wear. They couldn't mix fabrics, all of these different things. Now, the ceremonial law in the Old Testament, the New Testament tells us that these laws have been completely fulfilled in Jesus Christ and we no longer have to do any of them. Okay? We don't have to kill sacrifices. Why? Jesus was the lamb of the world. We, no longer have to, we don't have to worry about wearing mixed fabrics. Why? Because Jesus is the one that purifies us and makes us right. Okay? We no longer have to worry about all the weird foods that they couldn't eat. Why? Because Jesus made all foods clean. He tells us this in the book of Acts. Okay? So the ceremonial law, the ceremonial law really is fulfilled in Christ. But, this is important. These laws still show us something moral that is unchanging. All human beings still need to be washed. All human beings still need to be made right with God. All human beings still need a priest to bring them before a holy God. We need reconciliation. We are not holy and therefore human beings still need a mediator to make us right with God and bring us into his presence. That moral truth is eternal. So though we don't sacrifice animals anymore, we sang it today, you still need the blood of Jesus Christ applied to your life or you will not be forgiven, okay? So the ceremonial law, we no longer have to do those things. They've been fulfilled in Christ, but there's still a moral truth that's present in them that is unchanging. Do we understand that? Okay, third, in the Old Testament, you have civic laws written specifically to the nation of Israel. Now, this is where things often get a little complicated. Since all of God's laws reflect his nature and character, there are still moral laws in those civic laws that are still applicable to us today. But since we don't live in that culture, they don't apply to us woodenly, word for word. We have to do some work to understand the moral and apply it to our culture today. I'm gonna show you an example, an example I've been using a, a few times on the podcast recently. I want you to go to Deuteronomy 22, verse eight. It says this, when you build a new house, okay, so right away, God is instituting building codes here. Okay, so I'm just gonna tell you, even though many builders, many home, home improvement enthusiasts don't like building codes, guess what? Building codes were a gift of God, okay? Sorry. Now, not every one of them, but some of them. All right, let me say that, right? Here's what it says. When you build a new house, you shall make a parapet for your roof. What is a parapet? A parapet is basically a railing that goes around your roof that you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house if anyone should fall from it. Okay, here's what's going on. During that time, they partied on their roof. They had flat roofs, right? They would go up there, that's where they would eat, that's where they would celebrate. 
And guess what? If you had a flat roof and you were up 10 feet off the ground or however, and you know, kids can fall off that thing and break their necks. So what did God tell them to do? Build a railing around your roof in order that no one falls off and dies. Okay, thou shalt not murder. God is the God of life. He's applying that to the civil realm. You need to make, you, you need to, we need to make some building codes to, to, to save life, right? To keep people from falling off the roof. All right, now to apply that woodenly to our culture would mean all of us would have railings around our roof if we believed in that, okay? We don't have railings around our roof, why? Not, well, God's word says it, bless God, we should do it. That's not how the civic law works, right? We have pitched roofs, right? We have pitched roofs. Most of us do our best to stay off the roof, right? But how would we apply this? Well, it is code for us to have railings on our stairs. It is code for us to have railings upon our decks, right? Our second story decks. Why? To protect life, to protect people from falling off of it, okay? So I want us to see that those civic laws, we don't just apply them one-to-one, -one, but we dig down in them. We find the moral precept, the moral truth, and then we apply that to our culture today, right? You see that? Okay. Paul shows us, now am I just making this up? No, Paul shows us how to do this in 1 Timothy chapter 5. I'm gonna go there, if I can flip over there fast enough. If, I, if I've got it marked here, I do, good. First Timothy chapter five, verse 18. I'm gonna read verse 17 and 18. This is what it says. Let the elders, the pastors who rule well, be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Verse 18, for the scripture says, that's the Old Testament. For the Old Testament says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Okay, here Paul is arguing that churches should pay their pastors, especially the ones that preach and teach, and he uses an Old Testament law, an Old Testament civic law, to make his point. But the Old Testament civic law was not, you should pay your leaders. The Old Testament civil law was from Deuteronomy chapter 25, verse four, and it reads, do not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. In other words, while your animal is working, don't put a muzzle over it. If it's hungry, let him eat while he works. And he's applying that civic law to his present situation, to the moral context of his present situation. The, past, the pastors and the preachers and the teachers are working really hard. You should pay them while they work really hard. Do we see that? Paul used the Old Testament to make his point. He used the law to make his point. <clears throat> so when Paul read the Old Testament law, even after the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, he concludes that it is still holy, righteous, and good because it comes from a holy, righteous, and good God. So the first thing we need to come to grips with this morning is that the law of God is still holy, righteous, and good, and we should love it as such. Read Psalm 119. The psalmist has a love affair with the law of God over and over and over. He's just talking about how it wakes him up in the middle of the night. When I wake up and think about the law of God. Most of us, when we wake up and think of the law of God, we're, right? We, we don't have a positive thought about the law. 
And that's because I think we are unbiblical in our thinking. So what does Paul mean here? Because Paul doesn't just say it's holy, righteous, and good and just leave it at that. That would be simple. He's not simple. It's kind of complex. In Romans 7, 1 through 6, he says that Christians have died to the law. We've died to the law. We're no longer under the law, but under grace. So what does he mean by that? If he doesn't just throw it out, he doesn't throw out the Old Testament, nor does he just say, oh, it's holy and righteous. We've got to follow it letter of the law. He says, no, he gives some complexity here. Paul means at least three things when he says that we have died, Christians have died to the law. Number one, the law cannot contribute anything to a person's justification. So the law cannot make you right with God. Obeying the law cannot make you right with God. Why? Because you've already broken it a million times and you can never do anything to get back in his good grace. We are made right with God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Secondly, the law cannot relieve the bondage of sin and enable obedience. We see this in Romans 7, verse 5. He says, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. So when my conscience is weighed down by sin, I cannot go back to the law and simply try harder or promise God I'll do better next time. No, I need forgiveness and that does not come from the law. Third, the law cannot actually accomplish the full salvation that was foreshadowed by the ceremonial ritual. So even if I went back to the law and I tried to kill all the animals and do all the washings and wear all the right clothes and eat all the right food, that was pointing forward to Jesus. That thing itself was just foreshadowing the coming of Christ. So the law itself can't actually accomplish the salvation that Jesus did. The ceremony was the sign that pointed forward to the reality that is Jesus. So this brings us to our big question. How are we to use the law today? Listen to Paul's answer to his protege, Timothy, in 1 Timothy 1.8. He says this, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Whoa. Whoa. We know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. In other words, there are right ways to use the law and there are wrong ways to use the law. We don't use it for justification. We don't use it to earn our righteousness, to earn our acceptance with God, to earn an, an identity. We don't use it to remove our guilt. We don't use it to save us from our sins, but we do use it. We just have to use it lawfully. So what are those lawful uses of the law? See, it's a little complicated, but we're going to get there this morning, okay? Well, the Protestant reformers put those lawful uses into three big buckets, okay? The first bucket is the political use of the law. Maybe the most controversial. 
The second one is the pedagogic use, okay? It's a teacher, okay? The third is called the didactic use. That's the moral, okay? We're gonna break those down a little bit this morning because I just used some big words and we're like, what? All right, so we're gonna, we're gonna get into it this morning. That's what the reformers were, were pretty smart guys, okay? Let me start with probably the most controversial lawful use of God's law, and that is the political use of God's law. The Bible teaches that the civil magistrate governing rulers' authorities are meant to use God's law to restrain evil in society. We want governors who say, thou shalt not kill is actually something we should follow, right? We don't want governors that say, every man for himself. Now we want governors and civil authorities to govern according to God's law. Now why? Because the law of God, and he even says this law is written on the human heart, the law of God serves to restrain evil in the unregenerate. The law provides an external and universal standard of justice which can be applied within the civil sphere. Paul says specifically that the law is for the rebellious in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. I'm gonna go there right now. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8 through 10. He says this, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God, which I have been entrusted. God gives us a law because, it, because why? To one reason, to restrain evil in the unregenerate. Don't kill. Don't steal. Don't sleep with anyone who isn't your spouse. Why? To restrain evil in society. As people ignore those, society de degenerates and becomes more and more chaotic. Now, people get really weirded out here. I've heard many Christians say things like, and honestly, I've said it myself in the past. You know what? We can't try to legislate morality. That is not a biblical understanding of the law. We cannot legislate worship. In Christianity, worship cannot be forced upon someone. A free God gives free grace that frees people to choose him and worship him freely. Other religions like atheism, communism, socialism, statism, even Islam, force their citizens to convert. Christians do not. But when it comes to morality, it is not whether a society will legislate morality, it's which morality they will legislate. It is either God's law or what else? It's either God's law or man's law. It is either righteous, because God is righteous, holy, and good, so it's either righteous, holy, and good, or it's unrighteous, unholy, and bad. See, 
The secularists, the LGBTQ plus and pro-abortion activists have no problem legislating their morality. Too many Christians are sitting on their hands saying things like we can't legislate morality when the world is trying to legislate their version of morality. Theirs is a culture of death. Ours is a culture of life. Theirs is a culture of idolatry. Ours is a culture that comes from God. Ours gives life. Theirs brings death and chaos. Now, statements like that often make people pretty upset. And that shows us another thing that the political use of God's law does. The law also works to incite rebellion among sinful men. Look at Romans chapter seven again, verse seven through 11. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I once was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, look, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law of God here is meant both to restrain evil, but also to incite rebellion in those who hate God. That's something that the law is meant to do. So we, lay, we know that if you, if you give a law, there's something in mankind, the unregenerate specifically, that just wants to break that commandment just because you said it was a commandment, right? I used this illustration a, few, a couple months back, but when I was a wrestling coach at North Scott High School, they had a, a famous sign in the hallway that said something like, no chewing gum in, in the hallways. And on that sign was about 250 pieces of chewed up gum. Right? People just walk by and go, pow, right? right? You say, don't do it. What do we want to do? We say, don't touch it. What does your baby want to do? I've got a nine, 10 month old in the house. I say, no. <laughs> right? There's no Christmas ornaments within touching distance of my tree. They've all been moved up. This is Romans 1, right? Romans 1. God says, you know what's right. We say, we don't care. We want to do something different. It's one of the things... That's one of the things that the law of God does. Second, so that's the political use of God's law. We want our rulers to go to God's law and to work out the moral of God's law and create a just society. That's what the reformers did. That's what the founding, uh, founding, founders of our society did, uh, founders of, of most of the West have done. They've used God's law as the standard to build their law codes and all these different things. There is a right political use of God's law, okay? We want the Ten Commandments in our courthouses, okay? The second lawful use of God's law is called the pedagogic. That's a fancy word for teaching or the way of teaching. The pedagogic use of the law. Now, this is what it means. The law is meant to be a tutor that leads a person to Christ. One of the reasons why our society doesn't hear the good news of the gospel when we preach the gospel is because they haven't heard the law. 
They don't actually believe that they are under the judgment of God, that they're actually lawbreakers and that they deserve the wrath of God and therefore Jesus taking their wrath for them doesn't sound good news to them. We have to preach the law because the law is the tutor that leads a person to Christ. Why? The law displays the demand of God upon our lives as men and women. Since the law is holy, righteous, and good, because it comes from a God who is holy, righteous, and good, we are to live lives that reflect our God. God says, this is what's good, this is what's right, this is what's holy. That's how every single man and woman, they owe it to God to live that way. This is what God expects of us who are made in his image. And also, let me just say, this is the life that Jesus lived perfectly. Secondly, the law provides a definition of sin. John says simply in 1 John 3, 4, sin is lawlessness. So guys, I want you to hear this. If you don't have the law, you're gonna make up your own standard. If you don't have God's law, then you're just making up what you think is right. And that's what our culture is doing right now. They're making up what they think is right and then they're enforcing it from the top down in an authoritarian fashion. Sin is a person's failure to obey the law of God. Next, the law exposes infractions and convicts of sin. The law is more than just an arbitrary list of things that are right or wrong. Paul says that the law is alive, that the law is spiritual in, seven, in Romans 7, 14, that the law is, remember, it talks about scripture being living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. It is meant to cut us to the heart and produce in us a deep conviction that we are sinners in desperate need of salvation. That's what the law is meant to do. Next, the law condemns all transgression as deserving God's wrath and curse. Romans 6, 23, for the wages of sin is death. Wages of sin, breaking the law. When you break the law, what do you deserve? What have you earned? Death and judgment. The law drives us to Christ for salvation. Look at Romans 7, 18. Let's read it. 18 through 25. For I know that nothing good dwells in me. This is what the law did. This is what the law produced in the apostle Paul. For I know that nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right. So I want to obey the law of God, but, I not, but not the ability to carry it out. See, the law provides a standard, but the law does not provide a power to actually obey, okay? For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Paul is recognizing there's this battle going on in his soul between light and darkness, between the old man and the new man, between sin and between righteousness. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Now, let me just say, C.S. Lewis said this. Many of us read 
really scary movies and, or watch really scary movies, read, read really dark books. We get into all kinds of serial killer things. Many of us go to really bad people to learn about darkness. But C.S. Lewis said, no, 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 no. Dark, dark doesn't understand dark. Sinners don't understand sin. You don't really understand sin until you've tried really hard to be good. The person who, sinners are, are the ones that just give in to temptation right away, right? What's really hard is to try really hard to be good and then a year, two years, and then the, the weight of that temptation gets, sometimes it's greater and greater and greater and greater. This is what Paul's recognizing here. I love the law, I love God, I've set my mind to do the right thing, to obey him in all things, and yet sin in me keeps making me do what I don't wanna do. Anybody ever felt that? Yes. 22, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members, that is in my flesh, another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am. Pause. This is why God did not allow Adam and Eve to eat of the tree of life after they had sinned. Oh, wretched man that I am. I'm in, a, I'm in a state of living death. I'm in a state of conflict between my flesh and the new man. I'm in a state of conflict between light and dark. So God in his grace kicked them out of Eden. God in his grace pushed them away from the tree of life. So what has happened here? Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Anybody ever just cried out? I am so tired of this battle. I'm so tired of not doing what I want to do. Who will save me from this battle? Verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus. The law pushes us into a corner. The law pushes us into a corner. It condemns us on every side and says, you are not good enough. You have not obeyed God. You deserve the wrath of God. And what do we do? When we're backed into a corner, we're looking for self-righteous ways out. Wait, wait, wait. I've been a good husband though. And God can put a standard. Have you laid down your life for your wife like Christ did for the church? Dang it! There's nowhere to go. There's no, he's backing us into a corner with his law, with perfection itself, and there's no way to get out, and the wrath of God is right behind us. The only way to get out is the law pushes a person to Christ. See, this is why churches still need, this is why parents still need to teach the requirements of God's law because God's law is meant to back us into a corner and show us that there is no way out from the wrath of God except through Jesus Christ. God was serious about that obey your father and mother thing. He was serious about it. So, there's a political use of God's law. That's a lawful use. There is a pedagogic use or a, a tutor. The law is meant to back a person into a corner and lead them to Christ. The third and final use of the law, the lawful use of 
the law of God. It's called the didactic. And that means it provides moral instruction, the moral instruction use of the law. John Calvin wrote, the law is the best instrument for enabling believers daily to learn what the will of God is, which they are to follow. The law of God is meant to teach us what a holy, good, and righteous life looks like. The law is not just a weight around your ankle. The law is the good life. The law is the flourishing life. The law, that's what it looks like. That means, so we hear this, the law cannot save a person. Only Christ, the law pushes us into a corner. We believe in Jesus Christ. Well, guess what? As soon as you believe in Jesus Christ, guess what the road of sanctification looks like? The law. The law pushes us to Christ and then Christ brings us back to the law and says, this is the way you live. All scripture, when he wrote this, the New Testament was not compiled yet. All scripture, the Old Testament is breathed out by God. That's why it's holy, righteous, and good. And profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. How do I become more righteous? Go back to the Bible. Go back to the law. Read it. Obey it. That the man of God or woman of God may be equipped, complete, equipped for every good work. How do I do that? What do you mean by that? Let's, I'm, just, I'm gonna show you how the New Testament does this. We're gonna flip a few pages to Romans 13. Romans 13, verses eight through 10. Listen, Paul's going to give us some law here first. And this is what the law, this is what he says. Owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Okay, hey, remember, what was the law about? Paul tells us right here, the law was about love. This is what a loving life looks like. Why? God is love, so God's law is loving. Keep reading. For the commandments, he's quoting the law here, you shall not commit adultery. That was about love. You shall not murder. That was about love. You shall not steal. That was love. You shall not covet. That was love. And every other commandment are summed up in this word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Okay, Paul says that love is the fulfilling of the law. Now, this is interesting for us and very important. He's not talking about a feeling. Love your neighbor. Yeah, I, I think I do. Don't have anything against that guy. At all. I, can't, I hate his dog, but I don't have anything against him. <laughs> no. Paul's talking about very specific obedience to God's law. You cannot love your neighbor and kill him. You cannot love your neighbor and sleep with his wife. You cannot love your neighbor and steal his mail. You cannot love your neighbor and covet his car. To break a commandment, is to fail to love him. See, the Old Testament 
gets even more specific and that's why we need to go there and read it often. Listen, sure, love is the summary of the law, but don't we still need to know the specific things that it's summarizing? Here's one example. I've shared this a few times recently on my podcast. We're gonna go back to Deuteronomy. Back to Deuteronomy 22, verse 14. Uh-oh. Oh no, I'm sorry. Verse one. Woo, that scared me. Deuteronomy 22, verse one. You shall not see your brother's ox or his sheep going astray and ignore them. You shall take them back to your brother. And it doesn't, this here is like, it's, it's fellow Israelite. And if he does not live near you and you do not know who he is, see, it's not talking about little brother. You might, you might not know this guy. And you do not know who he is. You shall bring it home to your house and it shall stay with you until your brother seeks it. Then you shall restore it to him. And you shall do the same thing with his donkey or with his garment or with any lost thing of your brother's which he loses and you find, you may not ignore it. You shall not see your brother's donkey or his ox fallen down by the way and ignore them. You shall help him to lift them up again. Okay, again, again what is the moral in that law? It, we don't take that woodenly and go, whew, neighbor doesn't have any donkeys. Good to go. See, my dad taught me this as a kid. I didn't know it was a principle from the law of God. I just thought it was what good dudes do, right? If you borrow a chainsaw from your neighbor and it breaks, you are commanded by God to fix it or replace it. And this text right here, I'm sorry, that's in one through four. Here, if you see your neighbor's dog running wild, Oh boy. You feel the, the weight of that commandment just settle? Right? You see your neighbor's Christmas ornaments blowing down the street. Literally, this is what love looks like. Get out of the house. Go get it. Bring it back to him. If he's not home, keep it at your house. Take that stupid dog and tie it up Probably give it a treat. That's what love looks like to your neighbor. It's not warm fuzzies or a general sense of favor you feel towards your neighbors. I got no problem with him. He's got no problem with me. Love looks very specific. Something of his that's gone missing or that's, that's taken off. You actually get out of the house and you go and get it and return, return it to him. The Old Testament talks about if a man borrows anything of his neighbor and it is injured or died, the owner not being with it, he shall make full restitution. Listen, if a man borrows anything of his neighbor and it is injured or dies, the owner not being with it shall make full restitution. So you borrow your neighbor's ox. Your neighbor says, here you go, you can use my ox. You get out there and your ox dies you got to pay him back for that ox. Now, if, it's interesting how detailed it is. If the neighbor's with you, you don't have to. He knows how to run that thing. He knows how to use that thing, right? 
The neighbor lets you borrow your chainsaw, a chainsaw and, you, and he comes out there with you. He's watching over it. He's making sure you're using it right. It breaks. That's his responsibility. But if he gives you that chainsaw and you go out and you don't put oil in it, you don't, chain, you don't oil the chain and you break that thing, guess what your responsibility under God is? To take it to Tyson's and have it fixed or to go buy him a new one. That's what love looks like. Now, my dad taught me this as a kid. I didn't know it was the law of God. I just thought it was what good people do, right? You borrow somebody's truck, guess what you should do? Fill it up with gas. That's what love looks like. Now, again, we've so divorced ourselves from the law of God that we just think, God, love your neighbor. And we honestly, love your neighbor means nothing to us. We automatically assume, I'm kind of doing that, I think. Because the law of God has been brought down to here. So it puts no demand, no real demand on me at all. Too many Christians do not understand the law of God and therefore they think that the Bible doesn't really speak to the specific ways that we are to live our lives in our everyday lives. You want to understand some law? Just go do a Bible study on hospitality hospitality. That, you'll understand the, the, what God thinks, that you, how you should be treating your neighbors, how you should be treating outsiders. What, what is it going to look like? What is hospitality going to look like in our home? The law, and this is the last, my last point here. I'm going to go to James chapter one for this one. The law also because it comes from a holy, good, righteous God, and it is the way of sanctification for the believer, when we obey it, this is where so many Christians get confused, the law pronounces blessings upon adherence to its demands. When we obey the law, there is a blessing that comes with it. James chapter one, verse 22 through 25. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourself. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away at once and forgets what he is like. But the one who looks into the perfect law the law of liberty, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. He will be blessed in his doing. This is what human flourishing looks like. If we want a just society, we have to go to the Bible and say, well, what does just look like? What is a just society look like? Christians, New Testament Christians, we need to understand the law of God and we need to be doers of that law. We need to be obedient to that law. That law, first off, again, it's always God's law or man's law. God's law leads to righteousness, leads to liberty, leads to freedom and responsibility Man's law leads to idolatry, leads to addiction, leads to chaos. 
Always. Blessing curses. There is no other way. There is no middle ground. It's God's law or it's autonomy. Man's law, a law unto themselves. And we need to come back to God's word and say, this is the good life. This is what human flourishing looks like. Do I want to live in a society where my, when my stupid dog gets out, my neighbors don't call the police or the pound, but rather they walk out and they grab him, they bring it back to me? I want to live in a society like that, right? That's what I want my neighborhood to feel like. It starts with us. It starts with Christians understanding the law of God, understanding the lawful use of the law of God, loving the law of God, and walking and obeying the law of God. And of course, we fall short. That, what does that law do? The law, ne- the, the law doesn't back us into a corner once. The law consistently backs us into the corner where we need only, where we, where we need Jesus. Jesus is the only way out, right? So I want you to think about this. I want you to pray about this. I'm, I'm hoping that you make some more, you make some commitments to reading and studying the law of God in the new year. What does it look like in the political sphere? What does it look like in the moral sphere? What does it look like? What does the Bible teach about education and and how I'm supposed to educate my children? What does the Old Testament have to say about this thing? We need to go back to the law of God. It leads us into that flourishing life and the spirit enables us to obey it. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for your word. Thank you for the promise that you said as we would obey it, that you would bless us. I pray that our children would be blessed in their obedience. I pray that we would be blessed in our obedience. And I pray that when we fail and when we disobey, Father, that God, that we wouldn't look for a self-righteous way out, but we would go to the only way out, the one who lived the perfect, holy, righteous, and good life, obeying the law to the T for us in our place. And then through his death and his resurrection and the sending of the Holy Spirit, he puts that righteousness upon us. He fills us with the Holy Spirit and then he sends us back out to the law to live a holy, just, and good life. Would you enable us to do that today? And Father, would we remember that as we come to the Lord's table this morning that we're coming, this is what we're committing to do. We're committing to be a family that follows your law. We're committing to be your people that obey you as our king. And so we come and we eat this meal under the King Jesus and we eat it with fellow believers and all of us are covenanting one to another to live this type of life, to let your word be the final arbiter on all issues, to obey you in all things and to joyfully submit to your lordship in all areas of our life. And Father God, we don't do this with grumbling and gnashing of teeth. We do this joyfully because your law is a law of liberty and love. Thank you for it. In Jesus' name I pray, amen and amen.